Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Larry Koshard. Chief Investment Officer at McKenna Capital Management, a $20 billion OCIO formed by senior executives from the Stanford Management Company in 2005. Larry joined McKenna in 2018 following a storied career serving as CEO and CIO of the University of Virginia Investment Management Company, as the first CIO at Georgetown University, and as Managing Director of Equity and Hedge Fund Investments for the Virginia Retirement System. He was an early guest on Capital Allocators discussing his path, and that conversation is replayed in the feed. This time around, we discuss Larry's transition to McKenna, the differences between leading endowments and an OCIO, and his perspective on specialist versus generalist teams. 
We then dive into different investment opportunities across crossover funds, hedge funds, co-investments, REITs, venture capital, emerging markets, real assets, and crypto. And we close with Larry's take on market risks, opportunities, and managing his team. Please enjoy my conversation with Larry Koshard. Larry, great to see you. Same. It's great to see you too. Now, somehow the last time we did this was so early on. I think the podcast was like five years ago. It was five years ago. I remember it. I know a lot has happened for you since your days at Uvimco. So why don't we start with your transition to McKenna? No, thank you. Because it was soon thereafter. I've been at McKenna now almost four and a half years. It's been a wonderful transition and the portfolio is very similar to what we had at Uvemco. Tremendous team. They had started McKenna about 16 years ago now. So at that time, it was closer to, say, 12 years. So it was a very mature portfolio, mature team. But you know, at the margin, it's not my style to make dramatic changes. But over time, we've moved the team to more of a generalist model, not complete generalist, but having collaboration across asset classes. We've increased our allocations to certain asset classes. You know, when I started, we were about a 5% allocation to venture capital, despite our location on Sand Hill Road. And so we've slowly gotten that up over time to now closer to 13%, you know, still well below where large endowments are, but at a level where I'm very comfortable taking it up to mid-teens over time, but doing it very slowly. We've reduced our allocation to credit. We've increased our allocation to those hybrid type of managers but yeah, we've made slow changes to the portfolio, so I, I like where it is right now. I'd love to hear a little bit of perspective of difference of the endowment seat for you and the OCIO seat. Yeah, you know, to some extent, it's similar because we have one large, what we call the McKenna endowment portfolio, which is very similar both in strategy and size to the long-term pool that I oversaw at University of Virginia. So on that front, it's very similar. What's different is as opposed to UVA, where we have essentially one client, we have multiple clients. They all invest in the MEP as a big part of their portfolio or a small part of their portfolio. But there's a lot of dialogue with those clients, much as we had the dialogue with UVA to make sure that they're comfortable with the risks, the opportunities, so that we can be long-term investors. And so there's a greater time commitment to making those connections with our larger number of clients. And I'd say that is the biggest difference. But from a strategy standpoint, philosophy standpoint, very similar. So when you talked about moving from a little more siloed to a little more generalist. I'm curious, as you go across the team and across asset classes, are there natural synergies when a specialist moves to a generalist? And I guess just stepping back for a second, I'm a big believer of play to your strength. We're always looking for managers that have an edge. And you know, when I look at my own team, everyone has a certain level of understanding, passion, knowledge, relationships in certain specialties. And so you don't want to move them too far outside of that. But they're also, I really, over time, like to build a team that has a curiosity that sort of is increases the size of their sandbox. So 
I do want to take advantage of people that want to go very deep and specialize in a certain asset class or a certain sector. But I want people over time to mix with others that have this passion to go very broad. Because I do think some of the most interesting strategies are those that don't fit neatly in any one asset class. And so having a team that feels empowered to do those types of the type of sourcing, the type of analysis, I think is really interesting. You know, I mentioned hybrid managers, which can invest oftentimes in growth, oftentimes in technology across both public and private. There are natural synergies. In fact, there's a member of our team who works both in venture capital as well as long short equity, as well as long only public equity. And there's a natural synergy between looking at managers that focus on growing companies, oftentimes with a technology focus. There are then also synergies of people that have more of a value bias that will do credit, will do value public equity, but then could potentially do more value buyout that could then morph into real assets where there's an element of that. And so having people that can go broadly and then having an understanding. So for example, the person that heads up our real assets team collaborates extremely well with the people on the marketables team as he's looking at whether it's right now we're looking at, should we invest in public natural resource investments, managers? He works closely with our marketables team We have a REIT portfolio. So in addition to private real estate, which traditionally we focused on during the the drawdown during the pandemic, we saw an attractive opportunity to invest in REITs. We still invest in REITs. I think it's very interesting complement to what we're doing on the private side. That is really kind of a joint venture effort between our public equity team as well as our real assets team. And so there are multiple synergies like that, but ultimately you want to take advantage of the people's strength and where they have a passion to look for for investments. I'd love to dive through, maybe we'll do it by asset class, a couple of these opportunities that you mentioned and, and just get your thoughts. So, you know, you mentioned crossover twice, growth area, venture worlds coming into the public markets. It's not the first time we've seen this, right? This happened and lead up to 08 and there were liquidity issues. How are you assessing the opportunities and risks in these crossover strategies? So to start going back to one of our core investment principles, which is understanding that much of the investment landscape, the prices are relatively efficient. And so our goal is to try to find managers who have skill that can exploit inefficiencies. And when I think of inefficiencies, it's going to be more likely to occur in sectors of whether it's growth or technology which include technology, biotech slash healthcare, and are going to be in sectors which often attract momentum investors, uh, both in the public markets as well as the private markets. But being able to find managers that are skilled at doing fundamental analysis on companies that are growing quickly, or companies such as a lot of the biotech world where they're, you know, negative cash flow and they're constantly having to come back to the market to finance themselves. And to, I think that's those are really attractive areas. And those areas lend themselves to managers that can understand the private 
companies opportunity set as well as the public companies. And so, but really the fundamental point is the starting point is investing in managers that are adept at exploiting inefficiencies and looking for those sectors that are going to have those opportunities. And that really is the starting point. Oftentimes, I found that it's public managers that you know have invested publicly that do the fundamental work can really understand these companies get to know management teams that can develop the skill set of investing in private companies as opposed to those that cross over from starting with the private really which is ultimately is going to be a sourcing edge and then crossing over into the public realm and so I've been starting at Evemco and now at McKenna, we have a number of these managers that I think have shown skill both within growth slash technology as well as biotech. What are the aspects of public market investing that you found when private market investors have tried to cross into the public markets they struggle with? Ultimately, it's the ability to dive deep into valuing, you know, you look at five fast growing companies, which is that one company that you truly want to invest in that has the quality management team, has the quality products. And my experience has been that someone with their roots as a public manager is going to be more likely to get that analysis correct. But again, that doesn't preclude someone that comes out of the private world. There are plenty of private managers that do very good fundamental work. But as it pertains to technology, my experience has been they're less likely to be momentum investors. Well, let's turn to hedge funds and maybe outside of technology. I know in your time at Uvimco, there's a, a long legacy of hedge fund investing, particularly in long, short world. Things have evolved and maybe not for the best for hedge funds broadly over these five years and just would love to get your current thoughts. Yeah. In fact, I think the first time we met was at a hedge fund conference, probably close to two decades ago, where you had just written a paper published maybe in the Financial Analyst Journal. And I I think I quoted the paper while I was giving a speech and then talked to you soon thereafter. I always respected the work that you did on long, short equity funds as well. But Yes, UVA has a long history of alumni that have been successful, long short equity investors, and that's been a big part of the UVMCO portfolio going back a couple decades. I think, you know, as a starting point, we are right now, we have an allocation of hedge funds, which is just below 20%, say 18, 19%. It's been about that amount. It's been a little higher than that. It's come down a little over the last few years. Most of that is long, short equity. We have another group of hedge funds, which I'll call opportunistic hedge funds, which include credit funds. Although we've reduced that, we still have several managers that have more of a credit focus. I think the starting point is that you're going back 20 years ago, is hedge funds held up really well after the dot-com bust. And if you look to the early 2000s, there was a period of time when shorting was exceptional there were great opportunities to short. And hedge funds generated very strong absolute returns. And that attracted a lot of investor attention. There were a lot of flows into hedge funds and too much too soon. And I think that really changed the landscape. 
I do think it brought a lot of investors that had, which in my mind is the mistaken notion that there was this free lunch, you're going to get above equity returns with bond-like risk. And the way I view hedge funds instead is one where there's an inefficiency, especially on the short side. Shorting's hard. It's very difficult to do behaviorally. It's very difficult to generate returns consistently. The returns are very episodic. So oftentimes people just give up at the wrong time. But I do think there's an inefficiency that can be exploited on the short side. And having managers that can add value uh, shorting over an extended period of time, not every year, there's not going to be consistent value generated year in and year out, I think is very attractive. That coupled with the fact that it does provide some downside protection in a broad portfolio where broadly we're trying to match a level of drawdown risk in our broad endowment portfolio that's consistent with a 60-40 bond mix. And so our long-term goal is to beat a 60-40 passive portfolio mix of stocks and bonds. And since we're not going to have 40% in bonds, what we're hoping is that the hedge funds broadly, having a beta that's somewhere between a 0.4 and 0.5 exposure to global equities will allow the portfolio to hold up. And with some liquidity in that portfolio, I can use that as ballast in the portfolio to rebalance out of that into riskier assets should you see a large market drawdown. And so what I'm looking for in my hedge funds broadly, not just long short equity, but broad hedge funds, is to outperform that risk-adjusted benchmark. But knowing that over an extended period of time, assuming there's an equity risk premium and assuming I'm generating alpha on my long-only public equity, it won't keep up over an extended period of time to the public equity. So having the right expectation of what role it's playing in the portfolio, I think is really crucial as opposed to the said equities, it should outperform equities. And so at that point, you know, after a decade plus of underperformance relative to long-only public equities since the GFC, people are just giving up on them. I think that's the wrong approach and the wrong objective for hedge funds. So they still provide, in my mind, a role in the portfolio. And I think at a period of time where there will be value add on the short side. Within that area, have you changed at all the types of managers that you're investing in? Yeah. I mean, so for one, I'm not as big a believer. I think there's a role for some having some credit managers so that they can actually size up in case there's a big opportunity. But I'm not. The next big credit opportunity is always right around the corner. And I just don't think it's necessarily right around the corner. But I want to have the optionality in the portfolio of having right now, we just have three managers that have that credit background that we could size that up if the opportunity becomes ripe. So that is one area where we've made some changes. Otherwise, you know, we've moved to, you know, you constantly, like we do across the portfolio, replenishing. Your managers get big, they develop multiple products. And over time, you might not fully terminate them, but you'll reduce their size in the portfolio and then try to layer in more emerging managers, which has been a big theme of ours, is constantly looking for what we think 
will be the next great manager that is spinning out of somebody else. And so there's a constant natural turnover and move to smaller single product funds. It seems like a lot of the hedge fund spinouts have been very binary in terms of their capital formation. So they either start billion, billions of dollars, or it's really, really hard. Where have you sought to invest in some of those emerging managers? We've done, I'm trying to think in recent history, we've done one on the hedge fund side, which was well-publicized, got a lot of capital, we think is an extraordinary investor, won't name the person's name, but we're much more likely to invest in the manager that is not just getting the wave of capital. But we do, like, for example, even on longly public equity, there was a big launch several years back and we participated in that, but that is unusual. We're much more likely, even within our long-only public equity, to be investing in a smaller manager. Because you know, what's really important to us is developing a close partnership relationship where they're more than just someone that we see returns from, because we certainly want to see that. But we want to be able to have a constant dialogue with them to help generate ideas for us from a bottom-up standpoint of how we deploy our capital internally. And you're more likely to get that from a smaller manager that doesn't have as much of a following. And so it includes just being constantly in touch with them in terms of ideas in their portfolio, as well as co-investments. You know, it's been a big part of our strategy. Well, let's dive into the co-invest side. I know a number of years ago, we had this sort of conversation about co-investing and even some direct investing, and would love to hear about what you've evolved at McKenna on that side. Yeah. So what we've done over time is we've increased our co-investments across the portfolio, mostly private, but some public. So that's one. Second, we have a portfolio where we size up our top underlying portfolio positions from our public managers. And we do it strictly based on the 13F filings. It's not completely mechanical, but it's relatively mechanical in terms of how that portfolio develops. Most of our public managers take a long-term approach to investing, so the portfolio doesn't turn over that much. So getting lagged information from the 13F filings doesn't really deteriorate that much from returns. And it gives us a part of the portfolio that is extremely liquid and fee advantaged because what we've moved the rest of the public portfolio into one where we have this portfolio managers that are concentrated, very, in some instances, we're giving up some liquidity. So having this helps us manage the liquidity of the portfolio. So that's one other thing that has evolved over time. And then, as I said, back during the height of the pandemic, when REITs were very attractive, we actually implemented what we call the McKenna REIT portfolio, which is an internally managed portfolio, where as opposed to our public equity, where we're drafting after our managers, what we're doing is we're expressing the same uh, secular themes in our private portfolio. So it's overweight residential, it's overweight industrial we find sectors that we haven't found an expression for that we like, but not in the private markets, such as data warehouses and cell towers. And so we have this public portfolio that, again, low fee, very liquid. That is a, an interesting adjunct 
to what we're doing on the private real estate side. I guess the follow-on to that is, and I wrote this in a fall investor letter where I mean, I talked about, you know, because so many just get lured into being more macro over time. You know, when you have what's happening with the tightening cycle that's starting, what's happening with Russia, you know, what has happened with China, there's always a issue du jour that gets people worried, gets people excited. And there's always this tendency to become increasingly macro. And as I wrote about last fall, was it's all about the micro for us. You know, it's all about bottom up. And the way I think we as a team can try to maintain our bottom-up focus is getting closer and closer to those underlying positions. What it does is it makes us, A, we can save some on fees, it gives us more liquidity, but it just gives us a better dialogue than with our managers. It gives us a better lens into, are our managers doing a good job of doing this bottom-up underwriting? And so trying to keep that focus on the bottom up, I think it's easier to do that if you actually do this direct investing and co-investing. How do you think about the sizing of those direct portfolios relative to your external managers? We're never going to become a direct investor. It's going to be a, I think our edge ultimately is forging these long-term partnership relationships with managers And what we're trying to do is leverage those over time to develop some of these co-investments to get closer to the underlying companies. And so to answer your question, it's probably only going to end up being 5 to 10% of the total portfolio. Right now, it's closer to 5%. I think the most that we get up to is 10%. But we're still ultimately, our edge is unsourcing, evaluating, and forging these close partnership relationships with our managers. And when I think of the people on the team, what they're really good at is having these relationships. So even with, you know, we met, we talked about before the the big fund launch and, you know, that's a fund that has multiple relationships, even in instances like that, we do a particularly effective job of carving out very close relationships with managers. I'd love to dive into venture capital. It was surprising to hear that McKenna, with its roots in Stanford Management Company out in the Valley, didn't have a bigger venture allocation. But there's so much going on after very, very strong returns last fiscal year. How much of that's getting realized in distributions? Yeah, so we saw a lot of distributions last year. But without a doubt, you never want to say it's going to be exactly like history. But when we saw the dot-com bust... You saw a pretty bad several-year period in the venture world. And I'm not going to predict that that's going to be exactly the same. But like they say, you know, history certainly will rhyme. It won't repeat itself, but it will rhyme. And you will definitely see these long cycles in whether it's venture or just broadly technology. So, And I don't think you can really time those, but you want to be cognizant and be able to sustain a portfolio that can survive what it could be a painful short to intermediate term downturn. But I still am convinced that the skill that exists and the innovation that exists, whether it's in Silicon Valley or whether it's in New York and other technology hubs, will continue to make 
investing in top tier venture managers the most attractive return over not the nece- necessarily the next one, three, five years, but the next 10 to 20 years. And so I think there will be this period where there will be some short-term pain, but I think you don't want to give up on that asset class. You want to make sure, as I said before, you know, we have slowly built this up and we will continue to slowly build it up just a little further. It will never get up to the size that you see in some of the largest endowments that you know, over 20% or in some instances over 30%. But I think it is an attractive part of the portfolio to allow you to capitalize on long duration innovation. And, you know, being on Santa Road certainly gives us an advantage of getting access to some of those funds. And then when you look underneath the hood, not all venture is exactly the same. And Different allocators have venture classified in different ways. Our venture portfolio includes seed stage, early stage, late stage, growth equity, which are investing in companies which have been bootstrapped, have not taken any outside capital, and actually now generating revenues or close to cash flow positive. They just need capital to grow. Some of these companies, growing companies, are in, you know, not in Silicon Valley and other technology hubs, but are out, you know, in the hinterland. That's a very particularly attractive strategy. And we also have biotechnology and we also have crypto slash blockchain investing. So it's it's a pretty broad range across a number of sub strategies such that at any one point in time, some of those will be doing better than others. But I think over time, that's going to be the best performing asset class, just not necessarily over the next one, three years. So as you're sussing through that, and building up your allocations, there's a lot of GPs coming back to market, a lot of the desired ones. I'm curious on the margin, how you make your decisions. We, over the last couple of years, have built up number of relationships and we're at a point where I like the number that we have. I'm hoping we can actually take some of our managers, in fact, most of our managers where we're capacity constrained, I would love to be able to size up some of those managers and get some allocations from other institutions that are over allocated to venture. And I'm hoping that takes place over the next couple of years where I haven't seen any evidence of that yet. We've been committing, to, you know, it's been, been business as usual. We're still committing to venture. But there was one instance where there was a premier manager where we got a slightly larger allocation because someone had dropped out. But we're not seeing that as much as I had hoped for. So I feel good about the number that we'll have, but we're pretty much at a zero-sum game, meaning if we add a new manager, someone has to be let go. But I'm very comfortable with where we are right now. If that's a common story, which it seems like it is across your peers, what happens with the ecosystem of like new venture capital funds or the next wave when people are happy with their portfolios and looking to increase with their existing managers? Yeah. I mean, I I think it will make it a little more difficult for fundraising. But with that said, I still think there are enough potential LPs that had difficulty getting access where there's still going to be allocations made to venture 
from LPs that are under allocated to the asset class. And so I still think you're going to find an opportunity. And yeah, we're still investing in new managers, but again, that's going to come at the expense of some manager that is in the portfolio. So one of the things I know we talked about recently is what's happened with emerging markets. Uh, It's certainly been an area in the public markets that the world, endowment foundation world, OCIOs have been interested in, diversified away from the US for a long time, hasn't really worked. Kind of curious your thoughts today. Yeah, a great question. It's a great question because it's sort of a real-time area of discussion with the McKenna. I was actually just looking at, I'm in the process right now of writing my semi-annual letter and just thinking about strategy, long-term returns. And I was looking at returns over the last 30 years, more or less the U.S. return is about 10.5%. Non-U.S. developed market equities, close to 6%. Emerging markets slightly above developed market equity at about 6.5%. So that's a 400 basis point underperformance during a period of time when, this goes back to March of 1992, that's about when you started to see institutional capital come into emerging markets. And over that, you know, at that point, there was sort of the premise of high growth, high economic growth. And at that point, the valuations initially actually were not that interesting because there was so much money that was flooding into emerging markets. And then over periods of time, emerging markets have gone through periods where they've just gotten devastated. And then the markets would be cheap, and then they'd be interesting. But over that long period of time, the economic growth hasn't clearly translated into profit growth. And it's been a, from a beta standpoint, it's not been an attractive asset class to be invested in for that extended period of time. My investment in emerging market has always been on the premise that it's not about the economic growth, it's not about there being cheap, but it's really being able to find managers, getting back to our philosophy, let's look for inefficiencies, less efficient market, and let's find managers that can apply their skill where there's fewer other managers that have the same level of skill that are competing against each other in those markets. And that's actually proven out to be relatively attractive. I mean, some of us that are, you know, from the ENF world share a lot of the same managers, whether it's in China or India, and those managers have generated substantial alpha. But the bottom line is that what I'm questioning is that there always have been risks in emerging markets, but are those risks, are you being fully compensated for those risks, given what is clearly still an alpha opportunity? Are you being compensated sufficiently for taking what have always been risks, but now those risks may be even a little more elevated, given what you're seeing happen in terms of this potential disconnect between a certain part of the emerging world and the the rest of the capital markets, what you saw in Russia, what, you know, potentially China. And so that does worry me. And so when I think of right now, in a market where we've seen a repricing and we're constantly trying to assess, okay, where are we going to put our marginal reinvestment when we're getting back into the markets? So what have you seen repriced? Your biotech has gotten slammed. Software has gotten slammed. But then emerging markets have gotten slammed. But when I think of 
how do all of those compete with each other? It's not going to be emerging markets that gets my, say, redeployment, rebalancing dollars. We just actually put more money to work in biotech. I think that's actually potentially a very interesting place. And again, consistent with my philosophy of let's try to exploit inefficiencies, I think it's a very inefficient market. And so I think you have both alpha and beta opportunities there. But I'm a little more cautious about emerging markets right now. And it's really unclear. We've always had a bias towards public investments in the emerging markets, private investments I've never been as sold on in emerging markets. I don't think you get compensated for the illiquidity. So we're much more skewed to the developed markets and very skewed, in fact, really specifically to the US when it comes to whether it's buyout or venture or growth. But I really even wonder if you're getting compensated enough for those risks in emerging markets. So I think it's an open question. How have you thought about the re-underwriting diligence in this period of time when travel's changed? Yeah, I think that's one of my other challenges is we have, as well as a lot of other endowment foundations for years, been traveling around the emerging world, traveling around the world in general, looking for those next undiscovered managers that have skill. And for the last two years, two and a half years now, we have not been on the road. And that inability to source new ideas makes me uncomfortable. We're not going to make any investments. We have not made any investments in emerging markets with managers that we have not been able to kick the tires of their underlying positions in their home geography. So I think that's a real issue. And I don't see that opening up anytime soon. So to me, that's one other impediment versus what we could just do in terms of sourcing managers in the US, you know, developed Europe. So I, I think that's a real concern. I'd love to dive in a little bit on real assets. We have, you know, we have this wave of ESG interest and a move, at least up until relatively recently, of to get rid of fossil fuels and portfolios. Now we have discovery with what's happened in Ukraine of the need for fossil fuels, even in energy transition. How are you thinking about your allocations and how, have, how has that changed over the last couple of years? Again, stepping back to kind of overarching strategy, I came to the realization years ago that your private investments, because of the illiquidity and the inability to redeploy that capital during periods of stress, I really am just looking for the highest absolute return in those private investments. And so that has biased me away from real assets that are private. Still like what we're doing in real estate, but that's also influenced me in terms of having public real estate in the portfolio because I actually think real estate is a very interesting inflation hedge, speaking of in terms of inflation. But we have not made a commitment to natural resources in over three to four years. And so that's been, it's, we have an interest, yeah, we have a reasonable size NAV in the ground of about 6%. It's obviously doing well right now, but I'm less likely to commit to private NR because I think over a, a long cycle, it doesn't compete with other private investments we can do. With that said, I'm actually interested potentially in doing something publicly where there's going to be more liquidity that I get 
because I, you know, again, I don't think we can predict long-term commodity cycles, but I think on the public side, which has not been an attractive source of alpha or beta in the you know, public equity markets for EMP companies, I think EMP companies are really changed in terms of historically where they overallocate during sort of a boom cycle in their underlying commodity, they over, they overspend, overinvest. And so it's never been to the beneficiary of shareholders. I actually think that's changing right now. And that combined with what, as you said, are the challenges and what will be likely shortfalls before we make the energy transition to more renewable sources. I think there could be an intermediate term opportunity within the ENP world on the public side where it creates greater liquidity than investing privately. And it's probably the right time frame. And then it's the, you know, the devil's in the details of are there managers that we can find that we think can execute on that strategy effectively. Historically, there's been, a, I think, a lack of managers that I've found to have an edge there. Right now, there are a couple that we're talking to. Maybe it's something we end up doing, but it is something we are spending some time on. We seem to be in this situation right now, again, with significant macro risks. Inflation, for sure. There's real question of, obviously, what economic sanctions mean, how this affects China. And would love to hear, in the context of your whole portfolio, what do you do about these new risks? Going back to their basic principles or philosophy, I'm a firm believer of, again, playing to your strength, and our strength is not macro. So what I try to do as much as possible for the team is to tune out much of that as noise. With that said, we want to make sure at all times the portfolio has a level of risk that is close to the 60-40, sort of as a drawdown risk. And we t- operate within bands. The minimum is at a 0.55 beta. The maximum is a 0.65 beta. And then we have liquidity guardrails in terms of the level of unfunded commitments, the percentage of the portfolio we can turn into cash within a month, a quarter, and a year. And so living within those guardrails allows us to manage the portfolio through a cycle that would be stress tested. With that said, there's some leeway. And I do think there are elevated risks right now. So we are running at a lower, slightly lower beta to the markets than we have been over the last several year period of time. And so we are really not rebalancing that much back into equity. So we're running at a slightly lower risk level because I really do think, you know, Russia, that's a risk where, you know, we've, you know, we've fought in wars. We're not fighting in this as a war yet, but there's a risk of that. But we have survived, whether it's you know, Vietnam War, Korean War, World War II. And, and so we have invested through those periods of time and there's still returns to be had, but that's a risk. It increases the dispersion of outcomes. What the Fed is doing, what other banks around in the developed world are doing right now in terms of tightening for good reason, in terms of inflation ticking up, But what you're seeing in terms of the messaging from the markets, in terms of the flatness of the yield curve, in some instances, it's it's inverted at some points in the yield curve. And there's certain, whether it's inventories rising, 
consumer confidence falling. There are certain things that are concerning in terms of what usually causes a recession is the Fed or some other central bank going too far too fast. And that is what usually has been the tipping point of tipping us into recession. So again, we don't invest around predicting that, but we want to make sure we have a portfolio that is risked appropriately relative to being measured relative to the 60-40 benchmark and has appropriate liquidity and other idiosyncratic risks, or whether it's currency or individual position sizing, that we want to make sure not any of those risks are going to come back to haunt us relative to if we just manage the 60-40 portfolio. So the short answer is macro agnostic, but macro aware, and we try to keep the risk level in the portfolio at a level that is consistent, but aware of those macro risks. And without a doubt, they're elevated right now. I'd love to hear how you go about managing your team and how the team works together. I came into a team that is, you know, experienced team. And so the, the most important part from my standpoint is develop personal relationships with everyone such that I have a good gauge of when they're expressing an opinion or view. If they're pounding the table on something, are they always pounding the table? So they, they fall in love with everything? Or do they rarely pound the table such that if they actually do, I should really pay, you know, stand up and pay attention? And so everyone is a different way of expressing themselves. Everyone has a different risk tolerance. And it's really getting to know people on that individual level. And I have direct reports, but then I also have one-on-one engagement with really everyone in the investment team, all the way down to the, you know, the analyst that just started at McKenna, because I want to, A, be able to have a dialogue with them and communicate philosophy, approach, what are focused on. So everyone is trying to swim in the same direction, but have an ability for everyone to express a dissenting point of view and feel that they're empowered to express that dissenting point of view. And so understand where there might be bottlenecks in the you know, communications not flowing up but do it in a way that everyone feels that you should feel comfortable having making mistakes. There's going to be people, if we get 60% of the investments correct, it's, we're going to be doing really well, that there will be mistakes that everyone makes. I'll make mistakes, but we learn from those mistakes and that everyone should be comfortable with not being worried that, okay, if I express the wrong point of view, it's going to be held against me. And so that's hard to do. People have to trust you. It has to be a sense, okay, I'm going to go out on a limb. I'm going to you know, express a contrarian point of view, and I don't want to get my head snapped off. So it takes time for people to realize that, yes, I can express a different point of view, and it's fine. We may end up doing something different, but it's fine. And so it's that culture where we learn from our mistakes, including myself, that we're comfortable expressing differentiated points of view, but there's a certain shared set of principles in terms of what I was talking about before. Let's focus on where there's inefficiencies. Let's not do macro. Let's develop these close relationships with managers. Let's constantly re-underwrite those managers. And it's like trying to make sure that we have these shared sets of principles, but that everyone is empowered 
to looking at investments that could be outside of their narrow sandbox and they're not going to be infringing upon somebody else's turf because I don't want people to get exercised about that. But that takes time. And I'm now at this four and a half year point where I think there's a level of comfort with that. It's that level of trust, that level of collaboration, getting people comfortable working across things. And then just like figuring out what are people good at doing? You're not going to force certain people on the team that have only been doing buyout investments their whole life, and that's all they really care. They have an amazing network and force them to work on some emerging market manager in India. So trying to get the best out of those people, but to also get them to work together. It feels like it's almost obligatory to ask how you assess and invest in something brand new like crypto. Yep. So crypto is a great case study. There was someone on the team that did a deep dive. And this is kind of, this is, again, kind of consistent with, I want to encourage everyone to just run with something. Just, you know, go off, do research on some idea and let's bring it back to me, bring it back to the whole group. Let's poke holes in it. Let's see if there's an opportunity. And so this was probably three and a half years ago that the initial work was being done. It was led by someone on the venture capital team and sort of the thesis being for years we've invested in seed managers and for years we've invested in managers that were investing in technologies that were doing, focused on big ideas. And this could just be that next big technology and the big generalist funds, with the exception of, say, I mean, Andreessen Horowitz, where clearly there is a focus on that, the big generalist funds, for the most part, were not participating as much. Now they are, but they weren't. And it was mostly startup managers. So let's uh, see if this is something where we think there is going to be some application to the technology what are those applications? It's such that even though we can't predict what the exact value proposition is going to be for the technology, that there are enough good and talented engineers and entrepreneurs that are doing work that it's just consistent with everything else we've ever done in venture. So we made our first allocation a couple of years ago. It necessarily had the mix of both an emerging idea and technologies as well as just emerging managers. Because for the most part, these are managers that didn't have a track record. And so you're probably going to invest with a smattering of managers, some of which will be wildly successful and some of which won't work out as well. And knowing that you're taking not only the technology risk, but emerging manager risk. But we did it slowly. We've now built up an allocation such that over time, it'll probably end up being about 10% of what we have in venture and we're excited about it. We've gotten, you know, access to the leading thinkers, but ultimately we're constantly circling circling back is what are the use cases for the technology because we're not believers that this is going to be digital gold. I've also never been a big believer in gold. And so so it's not, you know, I see all the, the advertisements with Matt Damon and others when I watch the NCAA basketball. So it's not that but I do think that technology is interesting and will have a number of applications. And it's just kind of consistent with everything else we've done in venture. Larry, what, what's next on the horizon for you, either in terms of 
research projects or ways you're trying to adapt and evolve within McKenna? So I think right now we're in a good position from a staffing standpoint. We're constantly trying to hire young people and grow our own talent. So I feel good about where we are there, constantly pushing the team to look for that next idea that's going to be like crypto. I can't come up with anything. You know, everyone's looking at energy transition. We're looking at it too. You know, a lot of people are looking at biotech. This one that, as I said, we've redeployed capital into that, but it's, so it's not really a, a new area, but it's a growing area. We are reassessing emerging markets. So those are kind of ongoing research projects. And then otherwise, I'd say it's business as usual on re-underwriting managers. From my vantage point, I'd say the biggest thing for me is I will be here for another five years. We have a succession plan in place. So we promoted a deputy CIO last summer who is just fabulous he will likely be the person that will then be in several years co-CIO with me. And then in five years or thereabouts, I can retire and will be a senior advisor to McKenna because I do want a long relationship with McKenna. But having that in place and because very few firms, you know, we deal with investment firms all the time and there's always succession transition challenges. And Setting the wheels in motion in place early, I think, is really healthy for the organization, as well as our clients, as well as our managers. So there's a sense of consistency, a process, a philosophy. I'll be 70 at the end of that period, and it just seems like the right time. Warren Buffett's obviously, not that I'm Warren Buffett at all, or even close to that, but you know, there are plenty of people that have invested well beyond 70 into their 80s and 90s. But, and I will always have a love and passion for investing. And I will be able to do that. But I think in a way that people can feel good that you have someone that has the energy, stamina, and you know, sort of that steadfastness. And this is this the person we promoted, promoted has been with McKenna since he came out of college. And he's just the right person that there will just be this sort of we won't miss a beat because there are a lot of firms that struggle with that. And to me, that's the biggest thing that we've done. And I feel like we've started the wheels and done that well over the last year. Well, Larry, I can't let you leave without a couple of closing questions, all of which have pretty much changed since we last spoke. So here we go. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? So for years, my favorite hobby was tennis, golf, sports in general, but getting back to my age of 65, as my body just breaks down more and more, I'm out there on the tennis court and golf course less and less time. So, uh, which I guess which what allows me to work more, which is what I'm, I'm probably working more now than I ever have. But really, it's probably just travel and it is family. I mean, so my kids are all out of the house. And right now we have our first granddaughter and my second son is getting married in June. And so even though we don't have that same level of intense family time as we did when the kids were, you know, your kids' age, that it's still really fun and really meaningful to get the family together. Okay. What's your biggest personal pet peeve? I would say my biggest personal pet peeve is that it's whether it's in, in my, sort of my personal life or just business life is that when people don't listen, I feel like one of the things 
that I think I do reasonably well is listen. And again, getting back to that sense of getting people to trust me when I've moved to a new organization and the meetings I have throughout the organization is I listen and I listen and you have to prove that to people. But I know there are a lot of people that they just don't listen. They have their mind made up. They're not flexible. And there's this, you know, whether investing, you want to have this kind of this right to kind of thread the needle correctly. You don't want to be so wishy-washy that you're constantly changing your mind. So every, the last person that talked to you, that's like, that's all you want to think about. But you also don't want to be so fixed in your views that you're not open to, again, this sense of learning, learning from your mistakes and listening to new ideas. So trying to thread that needle, but people that are not good listeners, that really bothers me. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? Well, I'd say for one, my dad, who's since passed away over a decade ago, sadly had Alzheimer's. He was an investor. So he was a stockbroker when they used to call them stockbrokers before they called them investment advisors. And so I grew up with the markets. I remember I was a teenager in the early 70s when we went through the tumultuous Vietnam War, off the gold standard, wage and price controls, you know, the market corrected 50% back in the early to mid 70s. And I just remember sort of the stress that was clearly that he was experiencing. And he handled everything in a very dignified, humble way that it made a very significant impact on me. I'd say there are multiple people then in my professional life that have had a significant impact. There's a woman I worked with at Virginia Retirement System, Nancy Everett, who I'm a huge fan of. And just in terms of the way she managed people, huge fan of the person who was the chair of the Uvimco board when I joined there, a fellow named John McFarlane, who's just from a temperament standpoint, because I think having a temperament that can survive difficult situation, John just epitomizes that. So I learned a lot from him as well. What's the biggest mistake you made and what did you learn from it? Hands down, again, this relates back to philosophy, which I'll talk about in a second. I'd say the biggest mistake I made, there were a couple of instances of people that I knew I was close to that I had no idea what they were really like. And in fact, I led with this at our offsite retreat back in September of talking about our sixth core principle, which is people matter which potentially I've had one of our clients say, that should be your first core principle, people matter. Because ultimately what we're doing, we we look at bottom up at companies, we look at these global risks, we look at different strategies where the inefficiencies that can be exploited. But ultimately we are trusting these partners, managers, whether it's public equity, hedge funds, venture, private equity, we're trusting these people to invest over a long period of time. And the mistakes that we will make that we want to avoid making are on the people side. And it's very difficult. It's really hard to get to know people. And so the mistakes I've made from a personal standpoint of people that I really didn't know, that I trusted, fortunately did not have business dealings with them, that is really a lesson learned in terms of when we think about developing these close partnership relationships with managers, 
that we just have to go to the last mile of turning over every stone, of really trying to find out what those people are like, developing a long relationship with them before we invest with them, that ultimately those are the mistakes that we really want to avoid. And those can be just disastrous mistakes. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Just getting back to my dad, my parents were very humble, understated people. You know, I grew up in a very middle-class family. They worked hard. My dad was in the military, grew up in a more of a lower middle-class family, and they were just always very understated. They never had highs that were too high. They never had lows that were too low. They had this terrific, even-keeled temperament. And I think the thing I took away from them learned the most is that sense of consistency of temperament and attitude. Great. All right, Larry, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? So when I think of my, you know, when I was in high school, what I always enjoyed the most, what I excelled in the most was math. I thought I was going to be an engineer. My grandfather was an engineer. And instead, I became an economics major, which combined some math and more real world, which again, my father being a, a stockbroker, but relied a lot on everything was math. Everything was you know analytical, was extremely analytical, ended up getting a PhD in economics. What attracted me was the math. But over time, really have come to appreciate it's less about the quantitative, it's more about the qualitative. You know, getting back to the people side, getting it back to temperament getting back to investing where really the biggest mistakes are those behavioral mistakes of, you know, react getting too high at extreme optimism or getting too low at extreme pessimism and trying to get this consistency, maintain this consistency over time is something I learned over time. And, and that really came with age. So of increasingly, even though I have an appreciation for quantitative risk management really have moved away from quantitative managers, don't overly rely on quantitative risk management, use those as tools, but they're more tools, but really try to overlay that with a lot of qualitative assessments and judgment, which again, I wish I had learned that earlier in life. Well, Larry, once again, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, Ted. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time.